first immediately or you will be subject to arrest a boss ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan 128 before you play nintendo on some shooters so put the bridge down and feed us to the killer bees we get what we deserve like bury me with my mp3s write my manifesto in 72 dpi life's just a game you got cheated never learned i write these songs every bridge that ain't been burned for every cop car that ain't my name is Glenn, pronouns he, him. I'm part of the leadership for the Mahoning Valley Democratic Socialists of America. So just to start off, explain for anybody that doesn't know about the recent disaster earlier this month involving Norfolk Southern in East Palestine, Ohio, to your understanding, what actually happened? There's a lot of things that have gone on with it that are developing. Basically, February 3rd, the train that was run by Norfolk Southern, derailed. Um, I believe 11 of the 12 uh, cars were containing hazardous materials um, that notably were not labeled as hazardous materials. They crashed uh, and immediately started leaking a lot of different uh, chemicals, one of which was uh, vinyl chloride. Uh, and there were several others that have been identified. Um, I, don't, I don't know all of them off the top of my head. Basically, the next day, um, residents were told they need to evacuate uh, because of they've uh, discovered this leak, um, and they evacuated, I think, within about a one-by-two-mile radius uh, of the crash. At that point, uh, Ohio and Norfolk Southern basically came together and said that they wanted to intentionally ignite uh, the uh, train cars uh, and send uh, all the chemicals basically into our sky. Uh, they claimed that, you know, it was because their pressure was building and they needed to act quick or the cars would explode, which I, I would take it at face value. Um, but I there's been disputes on whether that was the only option, if there were actually more ecological uh, ways to do it. What I would think is they tried to do it so they could get the trains running. Um, residents reported that basically within a few hours after they cleared the train and, and exploded these uh, cars, uh, trains were running through again. Uh, and one of the incentives for basically trying to avoid declaring a, an emergency and rescinding a uh, evacuation notice is so that those cars could uh, start going back through again. Basically, they lifted the order, uh, the evacuation order, February eighth, um, and trains began running through. Explain, like right after the explosion, essentially what the state did and, and how the state kind of moved and what they said to everybody. So they came in, uh, it was basically a joint effort between uh, Norfolk Southern, uh, the Ohio EPA and the federal EPA. Um, the Ohio and federal EPA were sort of uh, sharing testing, um, uh, sharing how they tested, uh, testing different things. One tested water, the other uh, air and soil. Uh, they came through. Uh, basically, after the initial release of toxins, you know, that, that uh, was released into the water, air, and soil, uh, they came through and said, okay, we're testing, uh, looking at everything, and oh, hey, everything is, uh, everything's fine. You can go back to your homes. Uh, we tested, you know, out of uh, hundreds and hundreds of homes, we tested maybe five or six, ten of them. Uh, they seemed okay. You're good. One thing to note is the Ohio EPA, you know, Ohio has uh, basically been controlled by Republicans for quite a while, uh, and they've been intentionally doing a regulatory capture of the EPA. 
basically cutting funding and putting in uh, their people to make sure the, the Ohio EPA is uh, really uh, non-effective. So uh, people are being told this, uh, they're coming back to their homes, their homes are smelling. Um, there were reports of sick animals. Um, there are veterinarians currently uh, in the area, basically uh, documenting animals coming in, uh, being treated after this. There were dead, uh, dead fish uh, all through the rivers. Um, and continuing lingering smells that people were dealing with. Uh, at the town meeting, somebody said that they were driving uh, and ran into a toxic cloud. Basically, they had to stop and uh, get out of the car uh, and vomit. They felt like they were uh, basically almost uh, being suffocated. And just to be clear, you yourself are in the general area, and there's a lot of little towns around there. I mean... This is a, you know, East Palestine is like a town, I think of like a couple thousand, but a fair amount of, you know, little towns and villages just in that area. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there's a lot of little places. One thing to note about the Columbiana County in Ohio is that it's it's predominantly a rural area, but there are a lot of uh, small towns around. There's also on the other side of the, the state, on the other side of the Ohio River is uh, a lot of area in Pennsylvania was affected. Uh, roughly it's a 30 mile radius from the crash that uh, that's the initial like impact zone of, of the release of those toxic chemicals. So take us up into the town hall, the mayor's there, the mayor of East Palestine. Uh, there's uh, Republican politicians are out there that are representing the area. Also Norfolk Southern, I think was originally supposed to be there and they end up pulling out. So just explain to us what happened and who was and wasn't there. Myself and two other uh, comrades went down. Um, uh, one comrade who actually lives in East Palestine grew up there, um, you know, went to this town hall together to see what was going on. Um, it was announced, I believe on Tuesday, uh, fourth last Thursday, um, about an hour before the town hall was meant to take place. It was supposed to be live streamed to people that couldn't make it, uh, and get, you know, basically be a forum for asking questions about an hour before that took place. Uh, it was announced, um, that they were changing to an, a quote unquote open house forum. The difference basically is instead of a, being able to ask questions of the people there, uh, and get on the record answers and have everybody hear the questions. They wanted to do it basically like a job fair or something where, uh, you know, one or two people can go up, talk to, you know, Norfolk Southern or the mayor, get a couple pamphlets and get an answer. And the answer that one group hears, you know, could be different than what another group hears. And nobody knows what anybody else is asking or thinking. During the actual town hall, uh, the mayor basically flat out said that Norfolk Southern uh, insisted that it tur get turned into this town hall meeting so that they could attend. But uh, it did not matter because uh, Norfolk Southern, uh, after that was announced, maybe about half an hour or so before the town hall, uh, they, they pulled out citing safety concerns. Which is ironic. What, what safety concerns? Yeah. Chemical infection. It could be either the chemical infection or the fact that I think it was going to be a uh, a room full of people who knew exactly who was poisoning them. Uh, and I, <laughs> I think that that might have been scary for them. Talk about the feeling in the room. I mean, you know, you're 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 around folks that are there. You know, you're with somebody that's from there. Uh, how are people feeling? I mean, you're obviously impacted by it. What are people feeling? What are people saying? Yeah. So the the sort of the air in the in 
the place was one of sort of, uh, I would say like bewilderment, shock, uh, anger, uh, and, you know, a desire for information. These people wanted to know what, what was going to happen to them. You know, stand, you had to stand in line to get there. Um, and just talking with people around and listening to the different groups that were hanging out, uh, you know, people were, one person used the phrase like our, our town is dead. I don't know how, what we're going to do. Um, you know, so, so this is people's lives that basically in an instant, uh, were, uh, <laughs> nuked, they were bombed. And so people were wanting answers. They were mad, uh, over and over again during the forum, people kept asking, we're, we're told it's safe. The EPA, these testers that Norfolk is sending out say it's safe, but I still am smelling these things. I'm having headaches. I'm having rashes. What is causing these if, if we are safe? And there really was no good answer. Some people from the Ohio and federal EPA came out and, you know, they, they talk some science stuff. And at the end of it was just, it's safe. But if you're feeling sick, go to the doctor. And that was the answer that they kept giving. Thanks, America. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. how many people there probably have health insurance? Yeah, it, it's not many. I mean, the, the areas, uh, you know, we're in the Rust Belt. It's it's a sort of a lower income town. There's not even like a health department to even start coordinating any of this stuff for folks. You know, in a lot of the videos I've seen of, of residents that are kind of, you know, filming what's going on or the immediate aftermath. I mean, there seems to be just kind of a gut understanding that this was corporate greed. You know, if you look at the, what happened with the train, one of the axles was on fire. I mean, these are literally using like civil war era technologies that haven't been updated. Norfolk Southern not only donates to both political parties, but has lobbied Obama, Trump, Biden to, not go forward with regulating these industries and updating the infrastructure, which, I mean, we would argue not only led to this crash, but like weeks after the crash in East Palestine, there was another crash, which uh, I'm sure people in East Palestine are aware of, but there was one right side of Detroit from the same company. And that was carrying uh, toxic materials, but luckily the containers that basically derailed were empty so they ended up not spilling anything i'm curious like is is that something that that people are talking about on the ground or like is that kind of like where they're directing their their rage towards yeah i mean to to uh, go back i guess to your to your original question like the a lot of the rage was directed at norfolk southern uh people understood that this company polluted them and and polluted them for profit um maybe they didn't articulate it in that way but you know when uh, the mayor said that Norfolk Southern didn't show up because they were uh, feeling unsafe, you know, everybody in there, you know, either laughed or started yelling or booing. Like they understood when it came to uh, the the test that Norfolk Southern is, is conducting, you know, there was a, a over and over people were just not, not buying that they were giving them correct, uh, correct information. So tell us what happened at the meeting. Uh, I mean, what did the politicians say? What else was said? Norfolk Southern wasn't there, but what actually was what transpired during the meeting, if anything? A lot of basically info sharing uh, from the EPA talking about the types of testing they're doing, uh, what they're testing for, why it was safe for everybody to go back. And it was just a lot of trying to assure people that they were safe. Over and over, people kept asking, how can you tell us it's safe? 
when we're still experiencing these symptoms. And they had trotted out the different EPA officials and uh, Department of uh, Wildlife to basically say, yeah, we tested it. It was a one-time release. It's okay. Um, some people were farmers. They were concerned about their livestock. Some people uh, were concerned about the soil and the plants they were growing. Uh, you know, the, the very food that we eat. Uh, and they were told that uh, not to worry about it. Everything was uh, safe. I do want to focus in on uh, Bill Johnson is uh, the uh, Republican congressman. Uh, he showed up. It basically seems like he's trying to get his 15 minutes of fame here. And he would uh, intervene at the end of each question to give sort of like a dumb folksy little anecdote about uh, working hard. What? Yeah. I, so what, what was his position? I mean, what, what, what are the Republicans saying? I mean, also like JD Vance, I saw did a video where he's just like standing in front of some pond, like yelling about something. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to, at least I'll say for, for Bill Johnson, he is trying to uh, thread the line between you're safe. Don't worry about it. And I'm going to find out what happened. He wouldn't commit to anything, but he would say, I'm going to talk to Norfolk. I'm going to find out what happened. And he said, if, if you're mad that Norfolk isn't here, write down your question on this little card and my office will ask him. And it's like, okay, buddy, thanks for that. Um, I'd, I'd say the overall strategy is trying to thread that line between uh, saying that it's safe and then uh, basically trying to push the idea that, hey, uh, this is a, a small town, rural area of overwhelmingly uh, a white population of Trump voters. And uh, hey, guess what? The Democrats did this to you on purpose, or they don't care to help you, uh, whereas they'll spend money elsewhere on uh, those other people, quote unquote. I think that's the line that uh, uh, Bill Johnson and uh, J.D. Vance are trying to push. How is that going over? Because, I mean, I think this kind of brings up the other thing is that there were some neo-Nazi groups that were there, or at least one at that meeting. There was uh, some people from the National Justice Party, which is sort of like leftovers from the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi website that was involved in promoting Unite the Right and also, ironically, very hard uh, campaign for Donald Trump. So, I mean, they have a hand in creating this disaster in the sense that they pushed Trump into office to beat back regulations that would have stopped this from happening. They're basically pushing the same thing, like because you're white rural people that like Trump, this happened to you. How's that narrative going over with folks? I think to some extent it, it's sinking in. I think that people are more upset with Norfolk Southern than they are just at the the government uh, deregulation. There was a, you know an attempt to to talk about Biden and these things at at the uh, the town hall, but mainly whenever Norfolk Southern came up, people were mad. I think that there is a a real danger or a, a real uh, push that these uh, these fascists and Nazis are wanting to do, um, where they can find this. Uh, you know, fertile soil in, in a disaster like this. Um, because, you know, the reality is the people in these areas and where I grew up, you know, have, they've been put out to pasture uh, by both liberals and conservatives, mm -hmm. you know. Well, just like everybody else too. I mean, it, this isn't like a, a, a strange phenomenon, like, oh, yeah. neoliberalism has passed, passed them by and it hasn't passed anybody else by. It's like, yes, the system sucks and it sucks for a lot of people, including you. And it might look a little different in terms of like, you know, depletion of infrastructure or jobs being outsourced mm -hmm. or, you know, you're addicted to this and we're addicted to that. But I mean, it's the same basic, 
system ruining people's lives here as it is, you know, over in some other place. I mean, even just like the idea of like a natural disaster or poor people being subjected to the externalities of industrial capitalism. I mean, look, that happens everywhere. That happens in a lot of different places. I mean, look at Cancer Alley in, you know, Louisiana, where poor black communities are inundated with petrochemical corporations, you know, and cancer rates are through the roof. It's, yeah. it's not a coincidence. It's because, you know, these are poor working class communities. Usually it's communities of color that are targeted. Uh, here it's, uh, you know, a poor white community. Yeah, that's you exactly know, right. Top removal. Yeah. And, you know, some of the, some of the di- discussions there uh, at the town meeting um, came around to, you know, basically uh, we discussed it afterwards and it was basically, you know, a lot of uh, right-wing people and a lot of like self-described libertarians waking up to the fact that, wow, the, the government needs to do something. This is not, this is not okay to just have our lives nuked in this manner. Yeah. You know, so basically I think people's, uh, in a situation like this, people's beliefs and what they normally hold to are just completely upended, you know, and that's the danger and that's the ability for, you know, I guess us as leftists to show solidarity to people in need. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a major opportunity for people to, you know, see what other people have gone through. I mean, look at Standing Rock, you know, it was a native community saying, like, we don't want this pipeline going through our land, you know, which had already been rejected by a largely white community next to them. You know, there's so many examples we could go through of people fighting back against environmental devastation that would negatively impact them. I think this is just one more example. Like you said, the danger of the of the narrative that the you know, the fascists are pushing is that it's essentially the same message that Tucker Carlson is also pushing. And I know that he's had people from East Palestine on his show. So they definitely have a leg up in the sense that they have corporate sponsorship for whatever they're saying. It's very useful to just, yeah, have an array of different uh, facts at hand. Like, yeah, this was not uh, Democrats. Trump had a hand in this. What, uh, what about the, uh, the recent railroad strike? Is that sort of an issue that people are bringing up too? that like, a lot of these concerns were articulated through the strike. Nobody has uh, brought it up, I would think, within East Palestine. Hopefully, we'll be able to get a discussion going on as basically the advocacy part of this disaster develops. Um, right now, we're focused on on uh, just meeting immediate needs. But there's going to come a time when we need to talk about what happened. Uh, and that's where understanding, yeah, that the the union, the railroad unions were saying, these things aren't safe. You're cutting off and uh, laying off inspectors. Uh, and we, we can't ensure that these trains are safe for people. You know, We'll talk about what happened after the meeting. More stuff has happened. There's been more reports of fallout essentially from the disaster. What all have you heard about? Nobody is wanting to drink any of the well water. So they're all relying heavily on like bottled water and wash, you know, washing materials that don't require water for, for personal hygiene. That's, that's where people are at right now. They are wanting answers. People are concerned with their property values. They're concerned about their children's health. Some people have left and not come back yet. The school's starting up, but uh, there won't be any sports because basically all the other teams have said, we're not going, we're not sending our kids there to East Palestine for any reason. Talk to us about the grassroots mutual aid response. You know, I mean, there's 
mutual aid happening in the sense that there's people bringing in water all the time and helping each other out. Uh, there is also this coalition of left-wing mutual aid groups, uh, Funa Bombs chapters, DSA chapters, SRA chapters, uh, different groups from around the region are coming together. There's currently a fundraiser that's online. It's raised over $6,000. Uh, so just tell us about kind of both of those things, just sort of the organic uh, community coming together to support each other and also this other initiative that you all are working on. Where is that at? People on the ground have been uh, responding in the way that I think we see people do in disasters, helping each other, uh, getting bottled water for the community, coordinating on uh, water testing, uh, water filtering, and um importantly, a uh, uh, COVID test as well. So that has been going on sort of inter-community. But w- we wanted to uh, be able to reach outside of just that immediate area, provide support uh, through our various networks. So, uh, uh, you know, like you mentioned, the, the DSA, Food Not Bombs, uh, Socialist Rifle Association, um, some folks from Sunrise Movement, Serve the People, uh, and a couple other places basically all got together to see what we could do. We decided that... Uh, gathering money to spend on supplies would be the the best way to do it. So we put together this fundraiser and uh, we use a platform basically that allows us to transparently take in money. And it also transparently shows what the money is spent on so that we can all be accountable and show the community that we're being accountable. Uh, we are currently determining the best way to spend the money because there are a number of different critical supplies uh, that are needed. Uh, but we wanted to allow the community itself to speak. We would follow their initiative on that. So this town hall coming up on Thursday, uh, they're going to uh, talk about what's needed in the community. And then we are going to bring money to bear for that. Uh, in addition to these groups, uh, ourselves included, have started gathering uh, basically material supplies in addition to the money. Um water, uh, like Brita pitchers, some testing kits, things like that, that we'll be bringing with us uh, when we go on uh, Thursday. There's going to be this town hall that you all are taking part in on Thursday of this week. So a couple of days from when this is being recorded currently. And then also Aaron Brockovich, the famous environmental activist there was a movie about, is also holding an event. And also Trump is coming to town. So explain how all this is going to take place. It's going to be a busy time for uh, the, the immediate residents of East Palestine. There's a lot of uh, a lot of attention on it currently and a lot of immediate money. I don't know how they're all going to interact with each other. You know, if uh, Brockovich is going to you know wave to Trump on his way out or or what is going on with this? Uh, the people are basically trying to just process their trauma and uh, figure out what's next for them. What's going to go down on Thursday and sort of just what is the goal? Yeah, so um, the the host of this event is um, a Columbiana County uh, nonprofit called River Valley Organizing. Uh, they're basically, um, during the last town meeting, they canvassed to, to let people know. Uh, and basically their pitch was, you're going to go in there and be told um, what you should believe. We're going to have this uh, so you all can talk to yourselves and decide what way to move forward and what you all need. So there's going to be people there to, you know, basically ha- have a form uh, for themselves as the people of East Palestine. They'll discuss uh, what materials are needed. Uh, River Valley Organizing will be helping Canvas uh, to talk to people individually. Um, I know that we will be offering our support on that end. Uh, as boots on the ground to help with some 
canvassing to talk with people. It's a it's a relatively small organization and they're stretched to the max. Uh, so so that's one of the things we're going to be offering aside from money. The next stage, once we sort of get over the initial disaster relief, is going to be uh, basically advocacy and accountability, uh, making sure that uh, Norfolk doesn't just uh, buy their way out of it. Uh, River Valley Organizing was reporting that they were sending, uh, Norfolk Southern was sending legal predators uh, to get people to sign NDAs or uh, hold no fault agreements in exchange for, you know, a pittance, a couple thousand dollars or so. Uh, So they're going to be discussing those those things what what they should can you speak to that we heard about that as well that norfolk southern was sending different people around to talk with folks and get them to sign different things just what all transpired with that yeah it's as of right now unconfirmed reports but uh, river valley uh put out that they're yeah they're sending out lawyers and they're sending out people with uh contracts um especially around uh the actual river um that uh, had a lot of the poison leaked into it, uh, basically offer, uh, in some cases, to pay for people to move out of their houses uh, and pay them a couple a couple thousand for their trouble. We haven't seen any copies of these uh, legal documents yet. We had uh, a comrade of ours who lives in East Palestine go. Uh, Norfolk Southern is hosting uh, basically a what they're calling like a family assistance center where they're basically funneling through giving people a big legal contract and having them sign it to get their disbursements, the thousand dollars for inconvenience and then any hotel bills. Uh, And they won't let anybody have a copy of it and they won't let them take pictures of it. Wait. So in order to get the thousand dollars and to get uh, their hotels covered, they have to sign something. And what does that actually say? We don't know. It's a, it's a big document. It's uh, we've tried to have some folks go in as they were signing. People are having to wait six hours in line to sign this thing. And there's not a good sense of what people are are signing in order to get this money. After this uh, meeting on Thursday, how do you see things going forward? You'll just have to wait and see or. Yeah. So we, we're spending every dollar on supporting the, the community. Um, we're trying to once we go through this meeting. Um, we will uh, have a better sense of what supplies are needed. Uh, and then we'll be able to either purchase them there that night. I think we have some people in the area that are going to be there for a little bit to help um, and purchase supplies if they can close by. Whatever we have left after that, um, I know myself and uh, some other comrades who are close in the area will be taking charge, uh, dispersing uh, the rest of the funds for ongoing needs. So one of the concerns uh, that has been popping up Um, that we're going to figure out if we need to address at this meeting is uh, the concern of COVID uh, and getting COVID tests. So basically, there's a discussion that Norfolk Southern will use instances of uh, people getting COVID uh, to say, uh, that wasn't, uh, those weren't our chemicals. Uh, You you just had COVID. Uh, You're not owed anything. Uh, So we're thinking about uh, if it's going to be important for us to basically start a uh, a COVID test uh, clinic or something like that. Patriot Front has at least done at least one like drop off because they did like a little photo hop with it where they dropped off some water and took photos of themselves. We know that Matthew Heimbach has come through town and it seems like they basically just bought some water and then left it. We've already talked about the National Justice Party, but what is your sense of continued neo-Nazi attempts to 
try to intervene in this thing. We're, we're trying to plan for those outcomes. We know that uh, they are aware of us uh, being there on Thursday, and we know that they are also planning on uh, being in the area. Uh, so we're taking steps to make sure that we are protected uh, and that we're not going to be involved in uh, making a, a tough scene uh, for the people of East Palestine with these uh, fascists. From what I can see, there's a relatively small number of these people, and they are trying their best to make themselves appear normal, appear as part of the people. But I don't think that they've done any any actual impactful work or organizing uh, in the area. I mean, are, are people aware that these groups are trying to kind of come in, promote themselves? One, uh, you know, the, the fascists were there at the, the previous town hall, and they were causing a uh, causing a stir and trying to uh, agitate in the crowd. And they were basically immediately found out as outsiders. And, you know, the mayor got up with them and, and uh, argued with them and told them that they needed to, to quit agitating uh, and get out of their community. I mean, yeah, it sucks that they're fascists and they're there and that, yeah, a lot of them are not from the area. But I mean, at the same time, the whole outside agitator thing is definitely something that could be weaponized. I mean, and, and it can be the, I think our mindset and what, what we're there to do, our groups are there to support what the people need, uh, you know, anarchism in action, what they decide they need, we want to help with. We're not there to push a line or hand out uh, business cards uh, or take uh, photos for for uh, Twitter or something. In addition to that, we're there. I mean, we've got members from DSA and this, the uh, Socialist Rifle Association that live there in that area, in that town. And our, our uh, areas of operation include those places. So it's we're, we're part of that community. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, of course we live, uh, some of us live outside of the immediate affected area, but you know, the, the air, the soil, the water, it doesn't care about that. And we're not there to just cause a scene. Right. Yeah. It's not just shallow self-promotion. Right. Which is what I think the, these, uh, the fascists are wanting more than anything is just to, to do a photo op and say, look, we're, we're the actual helpers and the, the saviors of the white working class. Now, whether that works or not, you know, that remains to be seen. I think the real danger with these groups is that they're going to give credence to, you know, the Tucker Carlson's and the Trump's of the world. And um, people are going to see themselves not as part of this wider body of poor and working people that the system is grinding down, but instead uh, see themselves as this group apart that's picked on simply because of, you know, who they are, as opposed to, you know, victims of a wider system that's also doing the same thing across the country and across the world. And in understanding that, knowing that they have people all around them that are in solidarity with them, that have their back, that are also going through the same thing, that want to stand in solidarity with them, like you all are showing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, that's, that's part of the struggle, you know, for, for anarchists, for socialists, for, for us is to, that narrative has been allowed to grow, you know, and, and funded so much by the corporations and, and all these people that, uh, capitalists that have an interest in, in turning people away from, yeah, recognizing that they are, you know, in solidarity with each other, you know, as a exploited poor and working class communities. Okay. Well, we definitely want to encourage people. If you haven't got a chance to, uh, I would, urge people if you can you know share the fundraiser at least on social media if you can share it on facebook wherever twitter instagram uh there is like a little promotional image that has all the groups on there that has a link uh like i said right now i think it's 
it's over $6,000, but it would be amazing to get that up even higher before Thursday. Uh, so I encourage people to check it out. We'll obviously link this in the show notes. It's also on It's Going Down on the front page. Uh, but hey, thanks so much for taking the time and best of luck to y'all out there on Thursday. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Have a good night. To the politically minded Here's something I want to say About the state of the nation And how they treat us today In school they give you shit They'll toss you in a pit And you try and you try to get out But you're stuck in it she her pronouns and I mostly organize with the affiliate group um, for non-black folks to support a 
community movement builders organizing, but also kind of have some parallel projects and campaigns that the two groups can work on together. And then I also kind of organize with other groups uh, more autonomously. Yeah. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Pejuen. Uh, he, him pronouns from the Atlanta metro area. I'm with the Atlanta IWW. And I am also just organizing throughout um, autonomously, helping other folks out, connecting people, that kind of thing. So just to get us started, I just want to hear from y'all. What is the feeling like? I mean, there's been so much that's happened over the past couple weeks. Uh, You know, tragically, uh, one person was murdered by the state. Uh, There's been an outpouring of solidarity. We're going into this uh, week of action and solidarity with the struggle to stop Cop City. What are your all thoughts on things as they stand right now? I mean, I think for me, um, and, you know, I don't want to speak for the whole movement, obviously, but I think for me, you know, um, right here in Atlanta, um, the people who've been organizing in Atlanta, you know, who live here, who've been part of this movement for like, two years almost now, um, there is a lot of grief, obviously, um, and all of us are trying to be in community with each other and hold space for that grief. Um, But obviously, there is also an added sense of urgency to this movement, uh, because, you know, in addition to in addition to murdering uh, one of our comrades, they have arrested people on these ridiculous domestic terrorism charges. So how do we support those people? Um, but also, you know, there's a lot of both local and national attention on this movement that has been renewed. So how do we, how do we sort of take that sense of urgency and people's grief and anger and rage and, you know, uh, direct that towards stopping Cop City. Hence the week of solidarity that is happening currently and then the week of convergence that is going to be happening here in Atlanta from March 4th through 11th. It's been really like a resilient time for sure. And it's like that week of resilience, right? You know, we I think we were all like deeply affected by what has happened. Um, you know, some folks knew Tort personally and like were really close to them. Others were in the periphery like myself and others just knew of tour but never met them personally and we all were like affected by what happened but i've observed and i've been admired and just you know at all by like the resilience of this whole like movement just to keep pushing forward um i think a lot of the attitude has been okay we need to step up like like shaheen said like there's been like this sense of urgency and you know people have been taking like media training stuff people have been you know taking on more responsibilities, new people have come in, you know, the students are getting activated here um, in Atlanta, you know, AUC, the Atlanta University Center, which is where all the HBCUs are at, they're getting activated, GSU's getting activated, Emory's getting activated. So it's really exciting um, time. Of course, it still sucks emotionally because it's like we're all wishing Tort was still here, but it is really dope to see this kind of, um, I don't know, this, this blossoming, you know, is it starting, it's starting to hit like other areas, which is like really exciting and presents lots of opportunities to not only get the word out, but to also um, get going with action, you know? It's been incredible to see, cause I mean, you know, we've been talking to folks for a couple of years now on this show about the struggle against Cop City. And it's just amazing to see how much it's grown 
since then. One thing I want to ask y'all is you brought up students and what's happening at HBCUs. That's something we talked about on the last episode, but kind of tease that out for us a little more. What's been happening on campuses and how are students uh, in various schools uh, getting involved? So I just want to say like students have, you know, been involved from the beginning. Like I know that in some campuses there have been meetings about this. It's just that now um, there is like a bigger presence, you know, so I don't want to be dismissive of the work of students, um, you know, prior to the attention um in the past couple of months. Um, but, but you, you are correct. That has definitely grown, um, and gotten a lot more attention. Um, and I think, uh, you know, part of that is just as movements grow and, um, people have more capacity to support different people. You know, one of the things about the Defend the Forest Stop Cop City movement is it is a decentralized autonomous movement, right? Which in many ways is great, um, because it means people can feel empowered, uh, to kind of take initiative in, in their own places, whether it's their own neighborhoods or, you know, their own schools or whatever, um, you know, but it um, also means that like it might go through different iterations. And right now there is definitely uh, the student movement has grown um, and especially in HBCUs, you know, and uh, a lot of it has been, uh, you know, students, um confronting the politicians that come on their campuses uh, to basically talk about, you know, how all of the stuff that they're doing is so great for the city. And the students have like spoken true to power and been like, no, like this is exactly how, you know, cop city is going to not just like disproportionately affect black, brown and working class folks in Atlanta, but giving examples of how the police like, terrorize students during the George Floyd uprisings, you know, and how the, how cop city is just going to be more of, of that shit. Um, so I think like that has been one of it, like part of the thing confronting politicians that come on their campuses, but also organizing their own marches on their campuses. And now there is, you know, um, multi-campus student groups that are like coordinating with each other, um, so that they can support each other. And of course, you know, they're doing all of this, you know, with some faculty members on their campuses supporting them. Um, so it's, it's been great. And I think they've, you know, students have also been, um, putting out the call for how their movement and, uh, on their campuses, uh, you know, can and is connected to all the other stop, uh, stop cop city, defend the forest groups and movements. So there's been a lot of amazing collaboration also. Yeah. And for sure, I, I definitely agree with, um, Shaheen on that. It, this has been building up. Like this isn't just suddenly students are involved. Like they've been there from, from the jump. So I w- that wasn't my intention in terms of, of sharing that. But yeah, for sure. Um, it's definitely, again, it's within the consciousness, consciousness now of like, of a lot, of a lot of students. Again, it's just, it's, it's ballooned up. And I think it's like the hard work of the, the students that were first on this thing, finally, like seeing their work, you know, um, you know, meet that point. Um, yeah, there's been really lo- lots of exciting stuff. Like when Andrew, uh, Andre Dickens, um, visited like Morehouse and try to like tell these students, you know, what's up. Right. Um, there was a significant pushback to the point that like Andre Dickens was like saying, I'm not a sellout. And, you know, it's kind of cringe when you have to say that. Right. So it is really cool to see that kind of pushback. Um, even like councilman bond was at the, the rally outside of, the auditorium and you know he got you know 
basically like verbally bullied out like we you know people were chanting shame 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 on this guy and like eventually you know pushed them out right um so it, it really is like this kind of like like Shaheen said it's just like speaking truth to power to these politicians and no longer like just accepting you know what they're saying um and yeah like there's been some like good stuff going on too. I know, and Shini, you can probably give more detail on this, but I heard about um, that an Emory professor that was part, that used to be the president, right, of Emory, um, was part of APF's board, resigned from it uh, amidst pressure from Emory students um, and the, the broader movement. So yeah. it's definitely starting to like have that impact for sure. Um, and again, like Shaheen said, there's now like there's this coordination between all these universities. And again, like, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's like really, really dope. Um, it's a really exciting aspect of an already very exciting movement. Well, and I think like at Emory, this is also, you know, a perfect example of how um, different groups of people are coordinating. So it wasn't, you know, it, so like the Emory students put out the call for, you know, uh, for the president who I think is now the former president to resign, but also like, um, it was uh, a group of doctors and, uh, you know, uh, healthcare providers at Emory Healthcare who also like wrote a letter in uh, support of Stop Cop City and asking for that resignation. So this was like a, a an example of this like beautiful uh, convergence, you know, <laughs> of different groups demanding the same thing, you know, which kind of added pressure. So it feels like the state or local politicians are attempting to divide people and really kind of ram this down people's throats. And it doesn't seem to be working. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of this being, you know, um, this decentralized autonomous movement in the sense that different groups of people have been part of this movement from the beginning for various reasons, you know, um, you know, we might not always agree on every specific aspect of our politics or our ideology or even, you know, necessarily tactics that have been used. But what we all do agree on is one of the largest urban forests in the country should not be destroyed for a paramilitary training facility, you know. And so it's hard to you know, what's beautiful about that is, you know, when the state and the corporations and the powers that be want to change the narrative to this being an outside agitators coming in or whatever, you know, it's easy to fight that narrative because from the beginning, the movement has been a, a movement of people living in Atlanta who oppose this for various reasons, but also people in Atlanta have, you know, the people from all around the country who are standing in solidarity with us from the beginning, the narrative has been, yes, this is happening in Atlanta, but this is going to affect other people, you know? Um, and it's clear to everyone how, so the solidarity across the country is really important. And honestly, even internationally, right. And, and I think the people in this movement who've been organizing with their various groups and organizations have done a really good job making those connections. Um, so it's an easy narrative to fight when that political education, when when that shared sense of mission has been there from the beginning. It's very validating to see like these kind of mainstream organizations, like the environmental organizations that you were mentioning, Frank, like also acknowledge, you know, I mean, there was that one like lawyer, right, um, that was like 
right? Like got house arrested or whatever for like exposing some oil company or whatever. And, you know, he was also bringing light into all this and just spreading that like message. And like what Shaheen was saying is just, this is a culmination of like years of work and like years of this kind of like acknowledging that we all have the same specific purpose and goal. And again, we're just like bearing the fruits of it. So I'm really happy to hear that like these mainstream uh, environmental organizations are, are speaking out on this because, you know, it, it, it's an environmental issue for sure. It's a labor issue. It's a women's rights issue. It's a uh, racial issue. You know, it's it's all these things, you know, it's it's everything. I think people are recognizing how, you know, I mean, for me, this from the beginning, the core thing about this issue was um Obviously, you know, I'm coming from an abolitionist perspective um, and then, you know, environmental racism also. But like the cop city is going to disproportionately be affecting black and brown people and then, you know, working class people. And I think it is increasingly becoming clear how this struggle and this fight is at the intersection of so many struggles right now. Um, like what uh, Pihuan was saying, you know, and, 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 but now the connections are becoming so blatantly clear, which is why it's been really easy to fight this um, BS narrative from the state and from the corporations of an outside agitator. When the connections become so clear that everything in the news cycle that's happening, the same culprits are at the center of it, like like literally named. You don't even have to do like a hypothetical theory or power map. Like it's literally just the same names are showing up as the culprits and all of these struggles. It makes, it becomes really easy to, to make those connections, you know. Like the villainy is almost cartoonish right now, so... Yeah, like before we were recording, um, you know, on this episode, we talked to somebody uh, doing mutual aid work in East Palestine in Ohio, where the recent Norfolk Southern disaster has happened. And it just came out that they're one of the major funders of Cop City. It just shows you, uh, again, this intersection of state and corporate and police power and how much they rely on each other, which is, I mean, it's sick, but it's also fascinating just to kind of see that play out in real time. Well, it's not just that they rely on each other. Like literally the entire purpose of the police force is to <laughs> like serve the interests of money and capital and power. You know, like I think, again, for me, when I think about Cop City, it's the, the and the purpose of the police, it, it's, it's never to actually serve and protect the people. It is to serve and protect money and capital so it's again it's this is not a coincidence that all of these things are converging because that is literally the purpose of police um you know norfolk uh is funding cop city because they know that when they keep doing the shit that they're doing which poisons us which hurts us eventually people are gonna rise up you know, there's only so much shit people can take. And then who's going to be needed to put down that uprising? The police. So it's not a coincidence that they are funding Cop City. Um, you know, so I think like for me, when I see these things becoming blatantly clear, it's of course enraging, but none of it is surprising. You know, that's literally the purpose of police. A couple of things for like one, it's also just like very full circle moment. Like not only is Norfolk Southern like funding Cop City, but 
they're headquartered in Atlanta. The CEO lives in like a really hoity-toity neighborhood, you know, in Atlanta. So again, it's just like, yeah, of course you're going to defend your own backyard. And again, like um, Shane was saying, it's just like, you're also going to defend when you fuck up somewhere else, you know? And another thing too is that, you know, in this kind of era that we're living in of just government not giving a shit about us i it's it's really interesting like during like the syrian earthquake there was some graffiti that i heard about that basically said like the government doesn't care about us and i feel like that echoes so far beyond just like syria it goes to everywhere right it's just like the government doesn't care about us i mean the response of east palestine is just atrocious you know they, they've done nothing to like help the people there or anything. So going back to like just cop city and like what's going on here. Um, I think a lot of people are, are starting to get disillusioned about the state. I think a lot of people are starting to be very distrustful of the state and, and their intentions and like folks with radical politics. I've been saying this for years for sure, but it's, it's very, it's very exciting to see it in a, in another level. Cause like, you know, my parents were like, and they're like more conservative leaning, right? Or conservative in general. They were outraged when Tort was murdered. They were outraged. They're outraged by the concept of cop city. They're outraged by the concept that you could tear down acres of hundreds of acres of forest. Um, my friends that aren't as politicized or in organizing circles at all, they too are like very vehemently opposed. So you're starting to see this kind of, you know, spreading of this kind of like, hey, like, Cop City is horrible. What the government has failed us completely, and they're willing to invest millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into these things instead of replacing our tracks. So you know, uh, a train doesn't derail, or building affordable housing in Atlanta, where you know there is lots of homeless people, and we have one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, income inequality rate in this country. You know, so it is the highest now. It officially became the highest. Love that. You see, so that's that's the thing. It's like government's completely abandoned us. And it just speaks to, I think, the mentality that the government and the state is headed towards as we approach climate, you know, crisis and other types of crises where, you know, the response is going to be forced. It's not going to be, you know, um, actual help. And that's where we're going to need each other more than ever, you know. <laughs> what you're saying actually reminds me, uh, I... Uh... I was at uh, one of my non-leftist, you know, I guess normie friends birthdays uh, party on Saturday. And one of the first guests I spoke to who knows that like I do organizing work in my free time, like the first thing she literally said to me was like, oh, so I bet like you've been really busy with uh, like Cop City stuff, huh? And I was like, oh, I hadn't even told her about <laughs> Cop City. I was like, well, and I also love the fact that everyone's calling it Cop City, you know? And she wanted to talk about it and get involved in the next week of action. I mean, you know, like, is she, you know, uh, I, I tried to talk to her and make the connection between cop city and capitalism. And I don't know if she's, you know, an anti-capitalist, because she was kind of, you know, definitely defending capitalism. But, you know, we'll get her there. But the point is, even someone like that, who's, you know, uh, not involved in the movement, like, you know, our side is winning in, in in countering the bullshit narrative of the state. Like everyone is outraged that uh, a protester was literally murdered in the forest. And then when their friends, you know, like went to a protest, they got arrested on domestic terrorism charges 
you know, and some of them literally were just marching, you know, and so people were grabbed and charged with domestic terrorism. And it's just ludicrous, you know, why? Just because a few like windows were smashed. It's yeah. Oh, I heard the whole city was burned down. <laughs> and then no one has no. Oh, it's it wasn't. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, we. I still live in Atlanta. My my place is uh, standing, <laughs> so it's uh, it's actually a beautiful day right here in the city um, today. So yeah, I took the martyr the other day, and it was wonderful. I did a little read. Like I didn't see anything. Yep, burning down. Uh. No. <laughs> well, let's talk about this upcoming. Uh, Weeks of action because there's two of them, right? And uh, so, as we speak, uh, we're going into this first week, which is the idea. From my understanding, is that people will do events all over the country and beyond. Yep. Uh, people are doing benefit shows, writing letters to people that are facing charges, uh, doing informational events. Some people are doing protests. Uh, I know in D.C. a couple nights ago, there was actually a couple home demonstrations. So those are already kicking off. Uh, Talk to us about this week of action that's coming up. Uh, So like you said, uh, the week of solidarity kicked off yesterday. Um, So it was from, you know, it started on February 19th and it goes through this week to the following weekend. And yes, the idea is for people around the country or even internationally, because we've had some international solidarity movements in the past, um, do everything, you know, do some kind of event in uh, solidarity with uh, the Atlanta Defend the Forest and Stop Cop City movement. Um, So the idea being to recognize how our struggles are connected and how what happens here with Cop City in Atlanta is going to affect the whole country, not just because um, Atlanta uh, APF, Atlanta Police Foundation, has already been sharing the blueprints of Cop City with other police departments. And I mean, I don't remember the exact city, but I actually saw something in the news a couple of months ago that Chicago Police Department, I think, I believe, yeah. uh, was planning on building their own Cop City. I think there is a town or city in Kansas that is also planning it. So, you know, the police exchange information and training with each other. So that that's already happening. But according to the Atlanta Police Foundation's own open records, uh, like uh, uh, an open records request was you know put in. And according to Atlanta Police Foundation's own records, a full 43% of the police that are going to be trained at Cop City are not even going to be from Georgia. They're going to be from other parts of the country. And then the 57% that are going to be from Georgia, they're not all going to be from Atlanta. They're going to be from other cities, you know, in, in Georgia. So when the state and the corporations and the politicians, you know, push the narrative of an outside agitator, it is such a, a fucking hypocritical thing to say because the cops are the fucking outside agitators. Um, you know, again, 43% are going to be brought in from other parts of the country. So hence why the solidarity, the week of solidarity is so important because this is absolutely an Atlanta issue, but it is also a nationwide issue uh, because cops from around the country are going to be brought in. Um, so that's the idea behind that. But then 
after a couple of days, the next week of action, uh, which is March 4th through 11th, is a week of convergence here in Atlanta, where we are asking people from all around the country to come, you know, with their friends and their comrades to Atlanta um, for solidarity events here. And there's going to be a big kickoff event on March 4th. Um, there's going to be a uh, like a kickoff concert, uh, but also like a kickoff rally on March 4th that is happening um, where we want people, you know, from Atlanta, from all around to come and stand in solidarity for a huge rally to kick off the, the week of action. And, um, you know, and then all week long, there's going to be stuff like concerts there's going to be probably like trainings you know i think uh what i love about the week of actions that um you know the ones that have happened in atlanta is in addition to sort of you know protests and rallies um there are so many events that happen including like art shows um like creative writing workshops conflict resolution trainings what i love about those is when people you know as an abolitionist when people ask me you know, well, what is the alternative to policing? Like, what world do you see? You know, um, how how do we handle conflict? How do we handle disagreements? And, you know, my response is by building community. And the week of action, you know, is a perfect example of the world that we want without policing. Because the events are not just protests and rallies. They are events to build community, which I honestly are just as much a part of resistance as protests and rallies are. Um, so it's it's a beautiful week. You know, there is like yoga sessions that happen. There is uh, like a lot of care training and care work that happens during the week of action. Um and again, the other beautiful thing about it is anyone can have an event and people will generally like help out with it in solidarity. And it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you covered all the bases basically, but you know, just to add a, a couple of thoughts, just, yeah. I mean, for me, like I was drawn in fully into like this movement because of the weeks of action, you know, um, it's. It, a tagline that I've, I've heard was just like, you know, save the real world, you know, fuck the metaverse or something around those lines. Right. And it, and I think it's shown in these weeks of actions, right? Like it's just about connecting with people on this movement in a physical, real basis and in, in the multitudes of ways that we exist, you know? And for me, like when I was like, you know, in the forest and stuff like that, I mean, during those weeks of actions, I mean, I was introduced to something that I've never seen before. And like the, the feeling that I had, like it was so overwhelming in the best possible way. It was just like, holy shit, you know? And that's how these, this movement grows. That's how this, this thing becomes, you know, all over the place, right? Not only like in Atlanta, but like everywhere, the state of Georgia, the South, you know, the whole, the whole country. It's that when people visit and they check out like, what are the possibilities, right? What what can we see in this new world that's like waiting to emerge, right? It's just, it's it's beautiful, you know. It's really really fucking cool, and um, yeah, I think that's been like one of the, the the really good strengths of this movement too. It's just like having these kind of cultural, you know, informational spaces and events, you know. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be a really exciting time. Um, you know, everyone's coming in 
there's there's going to be a lot of good events. Again, I just don't want to repeat what Shaheen said because, again, she like covered everything. But yeah, it's a really, really exciting time. And just kind of like pointing out to like one of your first questions, Frank, was just that, again, it just shows our resilience, you know, like we as a movement will continue to keep fighting, continue to keep pushing, continue to keep winning, you know, and we win by doing shit like this. We win by like bringing people together to the real world to see each other as humans and to get off Twitter and to get off Facebook and to get off all these like stupid fucking apps and just like be here in, in community, be here in reality, you know? So it's a really exciting time for sure. And um, yeah, encourage everyone, bring your, bring your mamas, bring your papas, bring your grannies, bring your aunties, like bring everyone, like bring your friends, bring, bring them all down to Atlanta. Like it's going to be a really cool time. It's going to be a really um, exciting time. And I think the one other thing that I'd add to that is like, you know, what the week of action shows is, you know, not just like the possibility of a different world that exists, but that like those of us in this fight, we've, we've been, and, 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 and like not, and when I say in this fight, I don't just mean the stop cop city fight. I mean, just people who are, dissatisfied with the way things currently are you know we've been building and creating you know this world for each other and 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 for our neighbors and for our friends you know so stuff happens during the week of action but a lot of these things happen have been happening in the movement a lot of these type of events you know shows moments of joy moments of care for each other you know happen throughout the year we do this for each other throughout the year because otherwise will burn out. We are not going to be able to stay in this movement. So, I mean, definitely there's a concentrated number of actions and things that happen during the week of action. But yeah, no, we do these wonderful things to build community throughout the whole year. Um, and I guess the one other thing I will say about it is um, while there will be a lot of things that will be happening in the you know immediate area of like, you know, where they're planning on building stop uh, when they're planning on building Cop City, you know, we also recognize that like there might be people who want to be involved in the movement um, who have varying levels of risk, um, you know, because there might be people who are undocumented, there might be people with priors, there might just you know be people due to their identity who are who who will face like greater state repression, you know, they're gonna be, and also then there are people with different ability, you know, uh, like uh, there might be people with different needs and things like that, so. There's also a lot of events and actions that happen during the week of action that are very accessible to a wide range of people, you know. So if like being in the forest is not your thing, uh, there's definitely other things and other areas that are going to be happening. Um, and I guess the last plug I will make for that is if uh, as flyers start coming out for the events that are happening during the week of action and um you know, none of them fully speak to you, then I would urge you to just uh, organize and plan your own event. Um, and, you know, you can like probably even like if you need help with that, you can probably even reach out to like folks in Defend the Forest Insta or whatever um, and see if, you know, you can get other people to plug in. But it can really just be something as simple as like, you know, in your own park or whatever, you're like doing a yoga session and then like telling people about Stop Cop City or whatever. But, you know, I would just urge people to like create an event that speaks to you also. 
Yeah, and like one last thing to plug too. Um, there's been like this uh, growth of like Luwani defense societies or just organizers from other uh, cities and and states wanting to do their own thing, and that's been also like a, a nice little hub for like organizing, be it you know uh, demonstrations or just info sessions or like you know reading groups or you know uh, movie shares or whatever. Um, another thing too, I would encourage is like bring this issue up you know, in your unions, in, you know, any, any place that's like, you know, can be kind of active and kind of stuff like this. I know, for example, like the North Georgia Labor Council is going to have a conversation, like a, you know, in one of their kind of open meetings um, next month, you know, I think in the same week of the week of action, funny enough, but again, it's like th this can be brought up in many different spaces. And like, like Shaheen was saying, just like make it, you know, as accessible as, as you, as you want it to be, as you need it to be, you know, um, the, the imagination isn't just limited for sure. It's, it's endless. Well, for people that want to find out more information about the week of action, where should they go? So it's different, the Atlanta forest, all one word.org. And then once you click on that, um, you will see that there is a calendar link and there is a frequently asked questions link, and they have more information about the week of action. Um, on they're they're trying to also update the calendar with week of solidarity events happening all around the country this week but i know that they said that since it's so many different cities like 50 plus right now it might be hard for them to get each one of those on the calendar but if you are planning on coming to atlanta all of those events from march 4th through 11th should be on that calendar and then the frequently asked questions link has um information yeah, on Instagram, it's Defend Atlanta Forest. Um, they're also on Twitter um, at Atlanta uh, or Defend Atlanta Forest. Um, their email is Defend the Atlanta Forest at protonmail.com. Um, there's also stopcop.city as well, and stopcop's oh, yeah. Instagram. Yeah. Um, trying to think of any other like resources really quick. Um, there's also the Stop Reese Young website that just has you know again that's where like the list stuff is in terms of like you know who's funding what and like you know the kind of research going on there also atlanta community press collective as well um in terms of any other kind of uh information awesome well thank you so much yeah anything else you want to say yeah i just want to say thank you so much for, for having us here um of course uh rest in power tort uh love and miss you much um and yeah stop cop city cops will never be built if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to support It's Going Down, there's a new way to help us sustain this revolutionary autonomous media project. Go to itsgoingdown.org and click on the support IGD button. You can support us monthly or give us a one-time donation. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org and then click on support IGD. If you're on mobile, you can hit the menu button and click on it that way. You can also subscribe to our podcast, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, follow us on Macedon, and if you enjoy this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. All right, once again, we're back for another week. You know, one thing I do want to start off talking about is uh, I want to say condolences to Jen Angel's family and friends in the Bay Area. Uh, Jen Angel was a long time anarchist organizer, publisher, worked on a lot of different projects from Maximum Rock and Roll to Clamor, uh, Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair, 
will be deeply missed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't have much else to say except yeah. Condolences like Jen will be greatly missed. I mean, I remember being a young person in my early twenties going to allied media conference, <laughs> you know, back when that was uh, still in Bowling Green, Ohio, like years and years and years ago. Um, I actually had some of my first interactions with people from crime think there uh, at allied media crashing in some like shady punk house, like next to the train tracks in the middle of Bowling Green, you know, um, those events were really formative for anarchism in this area of the country and allied media still happens. I mean, it's changed a lot. It used to be a little bit more militant and a little bit more radical, but, um, a lot of the indie media network used to have their annual international meetings at allied media conference. You know, people learned how to do pirate radio, make zines, all kinds of stuff. Like there was an entire DIY culture that was heavily, heavily influenced by that event. Um, and Jen was heavily responsible for making that, making that event happen. Um, and other people at clamor, but, um, yeah, Jen Angel will be greatly missed. Uh, you know, they were a huge, huge influence at a distance on, on myself and a lot of other people that, you know, uh, have been involved in this for a really long time. All right. We're going to turn now and we're going to talk about what's going on in East Palestine in Ohio and what's been happening there uh, earlier in February, the Norfolk Southern company, they were taking chemicals uh, via rail um, on these train tracks and the axle to one of the trains uh, it was not working properly. There's actually video of it on fire as it kind of ro rolls through and, uh, it went off the tracks, it derailed and lots of different chemicals. I believe there was chemicals that were used in like, uh, manufacturing plastics and some other stuff, uh, spilled out. And what we're hearing from the company is that they needed to do a quote controlled burn and they basically exploded the derailed contaminants and it went up into the atmosphere. So there's a concern about exposure to the people that are there. They had a one mile evacuation radius. Other experts have gone on to say that it should have been much wider. People in the area said they experienced like uh, burning nostrils and throat, trouble breathing. There was examples of pets dying or getting sick. There's reports of people seeing fish that have, you know, died that have in various creeks that are in the area kind of floating to the surface. So there's all these sorts of problems, kind of like a, a bad smell in the area. So there's a worry about contamination in the air. And also the Ohio River is right there. So there's a worry that it's going to contaminate this massive watershed and this massive source for uh, water that supplies a large part of the Midwest and the East Coast. So let's get into it. What are your thoughts right off the bat? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, an industrial tragedy of a scale that is, you know, almost unthinkable. I mean, like we're, we're talking about the scale of things like uh, the, you know, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico or things like the Bhopal disaster in India, right? Or Centralia in Pennsylvania. And I know we're going to touch on some of these as, as we talk about this, but I mean, this is significant. Um, I've been talking to people in the Akron area that are feeling effects and starting to look at air quality and they're like 50, 60 miles away. Um, this is impacting a huge section of the state of Ohio and Beaver County, Pennsylvania right now. Um, 
what's making it worse is that you know the police and the train company and the state government have all been engaged in you know what could only be described as obstruction right the train company has been trying to buy people off by offering them a thousand dollars um we've seen uh, the city, like the police in the city, arresting journalists for asking questions too forcefully um, to the point where the state attorney general for the state of Ohio, which is like a deeply right wing conservative, decided to intervene against the police department because they were going to get sued too heavily. Um, you know, the state government has been going around refusing to declare states of emergency, which would open funding up. Um, and they're telling people that there's no contamination while at the same time telling people that it's going to take years to figure out how much contamination there is. And at the same time, they're starting to tell people to come home. Like not only telling people to come home, they're starting school in East Palestine next week. Right. And kids are some of the most heavily impacted people in this disaster. And they're just going to send them back to school. Keep in mind, they haven't done any testing yet. We have no idea how bad the actual contamination is, except to know that it is very bad. Um, I mean, people are reporting acid rain falling and melting the paint off their cars 40 or 50 miles away from there. Um, I mean, this has the ability to severely impact uh, not just, you know, the non-human ecosystem, but everything in that part of the state of Ohio and Pennsylvania um, for decades and decades to come. Um, I think what is there, there's a lot of anger building up in East Palestine because of the lack of information, right? Again, people are being told to come home. They're being told that the evacuation order is, is over um, and they're being told that they're it's safe. Yet at the same time, the city government released a statement today telling people that they need to drink bottled water until further notice, right? Or that, you know, they haven't done soil testing yet, but it's okay. You should come home. It's fine. You know, I think the other thing that's really, you know, illustrative in this situation, and you know, we'll touch on this, I think, probably in more detail as we talk, but um, the way that this disaster has been sort of spun by the right wing. Um, Tucker Carlson did this whole monologue about how these are all coordinated infrastructure terrorism attacks. Of course, there's no evidence for that. I mean, he was trying to connect the train derailments and the, you know, shootings at power substations together, even though there's no evidence for that. The other part that's ironic is most likely the people that shot up those power substations probably right-wing extremists, right? Given the circumstances that they happened in and their focus on infrastructure, right? But what isn't getting talked about in that narrative, and I think that this is the illustrative part, is the effects of austerity. So I don't know how many people know much about the world that exists between, say, Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Um, but it is full of bombed out small towns with crumbling infrastructure. The roads are falling apart. Bridges get closed all the time because they're unsafe, right? Whole train lines get shut down in that area periodically because they, you just can't run trains over them. I mean, it is, the whole area infrastructurally is crumbling. And anyone that's ever been through there can see that this is directly a result of that. 
And that crumbling infrastructure is directly a result of austerity that's been imposed federally since Reagan and on a state level for about the last 30 or 40 years, um, all in some like weird conservative, conservative attempt to, quote, balance the budget. They've cut funding for things like roads. Like you're saying, I mean, the the right wing is really doubling down either on this uh, conspiratorial, this is some sort of targeted thing against Trump supporters by China trying to link it to, you know, the recent weather balloon stuff, or they're trying to make it into this sort of like culture war thing. Like, uh, Oh, this is examples of how the Democrats don't care about, uh, you know, Trump supporters and in, in rural places and all that stuff. They're just going to sit back and watch people die, which I mean, you know, there, there is a, a little bit of reality in that, but the blame goes to the entire capitalist system and both parties. There's a really great article on uh, Leveler News. I'm going to read a little bit from it. This talks about essentially how both parties have basically bowed to corporate pressure to stop updates of railroad infrastructure, which would have hopefully been able to stop this disaster from happening. Uh, begins by saying, before this weekend's fiery, Norfolk Southern, which is the company that was carrying the chemicals, train derailment prompted emergency evacuations in Ohio. The company helped kill a federal safety rule aimed at upgrading the rail industry's Civil War era breaking system. Uh, then goes on to talk about uh, the sequence of events began over a decade ago in the wake of a major uptick in derailments of trains. You know, I think we've talked about this on this podcast, but I mean, if you go online and you look, I mean, there's a steady increase in train train derailments across the United States, and it's not caused by Antifa super soldiers trying to kill people on trains. It's caused by faulty infrastructure, the major corporations which run the railroads, which are grinding workers down, lowering safety standards, as we saw in the recent neo-railroad strike, and pressuring the government to keep it that way. I mean, they have a hand in this disaster. Uh, back to the article, it says, The sequence of events uh, began a decade ago as there was an uptake in derailments, including one in New Jersey where there was a major uh, train crash that leaked the same toxic chemicals as what happened recently in Ohio. In response, the Obama administration in 2014 proposed imposing safety regulations. However, industry pressure... The final uh, ended up narrowly focused on the transport of crude oil and exempting trains carrying many other combustible materials, including the chemical involved in the weekend's disaster. So they were able basically to push back attempts by the Obama administration to impose new safety regulations. Then came 2017. Trump is in office. After rail industry donors delivered more than $6 million in GOP campaign contributions, the Trump administration, remember Trump, that was one of his big things, we're going to you know, build an infrastructure, backed by rail lobbyists and Senate Republicans, rescinded part of the rule aimed at making better braking systems widespread on the nation's rail. So again, Trump bowed to corporate money and did not update the system. Specifically, regulators killed provisions requiring rail cars carrying hazardous flammable materials to be equipped with electronic braking systems to stop trains more quickly than conventional air brakes. Norfolk Southern has previously touted the new technology known as electronically controlled brakes for its potential to reduce train stopping distances by as much as 60% over conventional air brakes. But the company's lobby group nevertheless pressed for the rule's repeal, telling regulators that it would impose tremendous costs 
without providing offset safety benefits. The argument won out over Trump officials, and then the Biden administration has not moved to reinstate the break rule or expand the kinds of training subjected to tougher safety regulations. Again, this is a bipartisan disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I, like let's look at the politics of the state of Ohio, right? We can see that very, very clearly. I mean, this is a state where um, Democrats largely run the cities and at least in the Northern part of the state, the cities are crumbling, right? That these are places where, you know, New Deal style democratic politics still exists and they're crumbling, they're falling apart, right? Now, part of that is the kind of general meta economic context that exists in those areas of the country. I mean, remember, like these are some of the poorest sort of Rust Belt communities in the entire United States, right? These are some of the communities that, you know, you hear about when, you know, PBS does a documentary about emptying out, you know, semi-rural former industrial areas in, you know, Ohio and Pennsylvania. These are kind of the, the poster children for that sort of, situation like east palestine though not the worst of of that sort of phenomena definitely is not in a great economic situation and so we're looking at a state which was gutted economically by the rolling back of workers power and by outsourcing and globalization um it's a group of people who you know in in ohio who has lived under years and years and years of austerity um, that this is a place in which, you know, industry very routinely gets away with more or less whatever it wants to um, off the simple argument that they're the only jobs that exist. Right. So like this part of the, the state of Ohio, there's a lot of fracking, for example. Um, this is a part of the state in which people traditionally work relatively dangerous jobs, you know, and so we're talking about a community that for a long time has been sort of subject to capitalist interest, right? In a really, really direct way, right? Not in a sort of systematic way, but in like a very, very direct way. Like there is direct correlation between disinvestment in those communities and the failure of capitalism in Northern Ohio. Um, and so as we're thinking about these things, I think it's really important for us to, you know, start to talk about, say, the railroad strike, or start start to talk about things like austerity, right? That these, you know, in Tucker Carlson's world, these things just magically happen, and there's no coincidences, and there's always an explanation, and if you just, like, really shoehorn everything and squint your eyes enough and just kind of, like, reinterpret things kind of askew, you might be able to come up with an explanation, but the reality is, is there is a simple explanation for this. Right. The railroad unions were telling us this was going to happen. You know, all winter. All towards the end of last year, before Biden blocked the strike, one of the biggest demands of railroad workers was an increase in safety. And when that strike got shot down by the Biden administration, the rail unions came out with a statement saying this is pretty much going to guarantee derailments, exactly like the one we just saw. So we have a situation in which the state, through neglect, created a context for this to happen, then has decided to withdraw information from the people that live there, 
and prevent them from having accurate information about how bad the situation is. All of this has been done to serve, you know, corporate interests, which in the state of Ohio has almost total hegemony at this point. I mean, it's, it is a context, it's a situation that doesn't exist without understanding the last 40 years of American economic history. And I would even argue without understanding economic history since the Second World War. Um, we need to understand like, why places like this in the United States um, have economically failed, right? We have to talk about the connection between you know, poverty and ecological disaster, right? which is not something that just impacts people in cities. It's something that impacts people in rural areas too. Um, and I think that this might be a bit of a, of a call for us in a way to pay a little bit more attention to what goes on in communities like this. Um, you know, a, a lot of anarchist activity in the U.S. is concentrated in cities, right? That's changing, but it's still true. And that's a latency held over for many, many, many years of American radical history. And one of the side effects of that is that a town like East Palestine, nobody ever talks about or hears about, right? And it's not just an anarchy world. I mean, in general, towns like this kind of disappear. Um, and then something like this happens. And the only time we hear about towns like this are when they're on the verge of getting evacuated. You know, before I brought up the story of Centralia, Pennsylvania, which for those of you that don't know, is uh, one of the biggest ecological disasters in American history. It's a town in North Central PA. Um, it's one of the weirdest places I've ever been. Um, and it was a town that had an anthracite mine. It's a really small town. I mean, talking maybe a thousand people, there's an anthracite mine that they thought was empty and they started using it as a garbage dump. And then it filled up. And so they lit the garbage on fire. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, and it caused an underground anthracite seam to ignite and destabilized many square miles of that part of Pennsylvania. Um, just like in this situation, the US government was not giving people information. They were telling people things were safe well, at the same time, evacuating people. And that situation persisted for a long time. And it persisted to such a degree that everyone, most people, the vast majority of people, got moved out of Centralia by the EPA. Um, like if you go to, you can go to Centralia still, it's, it's a place. Uh, most of the buildings are torn down. All the street signs are more or less hand-painted at this point. There's no city infrastructure. There's like four or five houses full of people left. And a lot of the backstory of why those four or five houses where the people are there is because in the absence of information, conspiracy theories built up. And they were convinced that the EPA was kicking them out of their homes to steal their coal. Right? That they ended up in a situation in which an already economically marginalized community of people was being forced from their homes without really understanding why. And it bred a relatively strange reaction out of a lack of information. Um, and again, until that happened, most people had never heard of Centralia, right? Most people still in the US have never heard of Centralia. Um, everyone should know what that, everyone should know that name, right? Um, we watch these kinds of disasters happen in towns like this all the time. You know, when we hear of, you know, oil or natural gas pipelines rupturing and spilling toxic chemicals all over the place, that often happens in rural areas, 
right? That's the place where the groundwater gets poisoned. When we talk about hydrofracking and the way the hydrofracking poisons groundwater, that's happening in these rural areas, right? And these are the kinds of places where we're really watching a lot of the effects of the failures of American capitalism really play themselves out in ways that are often relatively invisible. Yeah. I think it's also important to not take uh, the term rural to, to mean code word for white too. You know, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, poor and working class white people in rural areas. I mean, that's very true, but also like look at Standing Rock. I mean, what was Standing Rock? Standing Rock was a native community rejecting a pipeline going through their land that a white community next to them had already rejected going through their town as well. You know, uh, look at Cancer Alley where people were fighting in Louisiana to stop uh, that section of the uh, pipeline going through their area. I mean, Cancer Alley is largely, uh, you know, a cluster of black communities that are dealing with decades and decades of uh, petroleum uh, companies infecting their communities with cancer-causing agents. I mean, this is what people mean by environmental racism, sticking things that cause cancers and other diseases in areas largely low-income and of color. Yeah, so I think that's important to keep in mind. I think the other thing, too, is that you know the Republicans are going to spin this uh, you know, as the the Democrats are are drunk at the wheel and they don't care about people in you know poor communities, they rural communities, they just care about people in big cities, you know, coastal elites, or you know they'll spin it in a racist way. They just care about you know immigrants. But I think again we have to call out that like this is a bipartisan disaster. All of the recent administrations, whether they're Democratic or the Republican have bowed to corporate pressure and refuse to update infrastructure and basically go against the interests of the people running these corporations. I mean, this is a bipartisan deal. So this idea that somehow the Republicans care more about uh, their constituents if they vote for them, you know, because they're making the point that this is in a quote unquote a red area is just BS. You know, it's, it's, it's fantasy. Again, I want to read from this uh, leveler article. It says amid the lobbying uh, blitz against stronger transportation safety regulations, the company uh, that caused this disaster paid executives millions and spent billions on stock buybacks all while the company shed thousands of employees, despite warnings that understaffings are intensifying safety risks. Norfolk Southern officials also fought off a shareholder initiative that would have required company executives to assess, review, and mitigate risks of hazardous material transportation. So in other words, while the people at the top were raking in lots of money, they were slashing jobs for people and also cutting corners in terms of safety. I mean, this is, again, this is the classical austerity model. We've gone over this on this show many times. You know, this is how capitalism has kept itself afloat. It's made people work more for less and also cut corners in any way that it can in order to keep the money flowing to the top. And this is also, you know, like you said, you brought up the recent near strike that happened. I mean, this is one of the main things that people were really upset about was not only safety standards, but the fact that these workers are being worked to the bone and they can't even get some time off to go see their kids or if somebody gets sick or something like that, they're being forced to just work and work and work and work and work without any time off. And one of the reasons they're doing this is because they're slashing the number of employees 
you know, on these railroad lines, uh, while they're also slashing safety standards and refusing to update infrastructure. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. I mean, you can't put overworked people on old equipment that's breaking down and it's and expect things not to happen. And at that point, basically what you're doing is you're basically rationalizing the cost of disasters like this and lives lost to the amount of money that you're going to have to pay out in terms of lawsuits and everything like that. And I mean, I think it's only a matter of time before we see massive class action lawsuits and stuff like that. Um, But obviously stuff should be done. So this never happens again. We have to think about in a situation like this, again, like what life in, in these communities looks like right now. Right. Um, You know, rural America has dealt with economic crisis just as much as, as cities have in that part of the country. Um, To the point where, you know, the second poorest city in the country is Cleveland, but Cuyahoga County where Cleveland is, is not the poorest county in Ohio. I think it's the third poorest county in Ohio. Right. And that should tell us a lot. Um, You know, this is a state full of crumbling communities. And that crumbling of rural communities is a political phenomenon that we have to be a lot more attentive to. Um, You really look at, say, people who showed up on January 6th, right? Or you look at a lot of the narratives that came out of the militia movement. And really, a lot of them have to do more with the fact that the parts of the country where those people live are collapsing socially. Their kids are moving out of those towns and not coming back. The farms are shutting down. The businesses are shutting down. There's no money right? Um, Populations are aging. And that entire way of life is is falling apart. It's incredibly disruptive. And then on top of that, you add disasters like this, right? So now you have a community of people who has been, you know, subject to the detrimental effects of capitalism for a long time in a part of a state which has been subject to the detrimental effects of capitalism for a long time. And then a predictable disaster happens due to corporate interests and the politicians that support them. And now all these people are being openly lied to and forced out of their homes. Like, of course they're angry, right? I would be really surprised if we don't see an uptick in political action in that part of the state of Ohio. It's one of those moments of such extreme disaster that it's almost impossible to not respond, right? Um, These kinds of things will happen again. You know, we're going to see disasters like this increasing over time, right? I say this a lot on this show, but we have to come to terms with the fact that America is collapsing. As a political system, as a way of doing economics, as a way of life, as an infrastructure, America is collapsing, right? And that's having extreme social and political effects. And this is one of them, but this is just one of them. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is this massive disaster is very clearly a symptom of a much broader series of dynamics, which you know, in themselves 
um, continually cause disaster, especially in this part of the country, but in general, continually cause disaster over and over and over on an almost constant basis. To your point, Flint, Michigan is once again back in the news. I'm reading right now there's again a three-day water boil advisory. Uh, there's been a break in a major water line. I mean, things there were still not fixed after years after the water crisis. I mean, this remains the case in a lot of uh, places around the so-called United States. You know, I was listening the other day to uh, Marketplace on NPR, and they were talking about how over the last year, or essentially since the um, since inflation was really big and we had the whole thing about gas going up and all these companies were making so much money around fossil fuels again over the past couple months over you know the summer and the fall, uh, a lot of them have gone back on the amount of money that they were putting into renewables. You know, um, like British Petroleum, they were talking about famously had like earmarked you know all this money for millions of dollars and they were trying to brand themselves like oh we're not just a a gas company we're a you know an energy company and we're investing in the future and we want to engage in this you know equitable transition into a you know a new way of being and all this stuff and a lot of people rightfully so were calling out a lot of these companies for greenwashing and all this stuff but the point that they were making on the show is that a lot of these companies now are drastically reducing the amount of money they're pledging for renewables because they're seeing that there's not a there's not as much money in this sort of you know niche market right now of things like electric vehicles but there's still obviously a lot of money to be made in gasoline because i mean the whole system is based around it so they were saying that the talking points that a lot of these companies are putting out now is that, you know, oh, we're still committed to a transition, but it might be a lot longer than we originally said that we're going to do this. So again, it just shows you, I mean, this system, I mean, it's it's not even logical. You know, it's not even thinking about tomorrow. It's just about, you know, what can they get out of it right now because they've got to get theirs because the whole thing might tumble down tomorrow and the whole deck of cards might come apart. You know, I mean, there's no... There's no thinking about people or communities or about, you know, the impact of this stuff. I mean, think, you know, like as we were saying at the beginning of it, think about, you know, what might be impacted by this and the negative outcomes of all these things. I mean, livestock, whole ecosystems, you know, whole communities of people, the entire watershed getting polluted. I mean, how can you consciously do that? We were talking before we started recording. I mean, to me, this this automatically brings up the... uh Bhopal disaster. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right in India, but this is something that happened in 1984 where the Union Carbine Corporation, there was an insecticide plant. It was owned by this American firm. Uh, You know, 45 tons of dangerous gas exploded into this, you know, densely populated area, killing thousands of people almost, almost immediately. Um, you know, the final death toll was between 15 and 20,000 people. Lots of people remain sick. Uh, the area around it is still contaminated and the company, which is now owned by Dow chemical company, at least in the U S excuse me, has not even been held accountable. People in India have, but not in the United States and people are still fighting to, 
get justice for the people that have died and also the impacted communities. I mean, here in the United States, I don't even think most people even know that this even happened. But it just shows you the the degree of savagery uh, these corporations are willing to engage in on a mass level and just kind of shrug their shoulders and be like, this is the price of business. Well, and think about this way, right? So like they're able to transport chemicals like this through the state of Ohio because corporations have systematically gutted environmental regulations in the state of Ohio. Um, those There are train lines that carry chemicals like this that pass through whole parts of the city of Cleveland, for example. And if a train would derail in that situation, we're talking 100,000 people getting evacuated, five, 10,000 people dead, right? It, it, would, it would gut an entire part of a major city. Like that... That's a disaster on such a scale that, again, it's almost unimaginable. And it's hard to see, I think, that scale sometimes because it's happening in such a small town. Like East Palestine is like 4,000 people or something. It's tiny. Um, But if this were to happen in Chicago or Cleveland or Pittsburgh, cities that have a lot of train lines that go through them that carry toxic chemicals, I mean, we are talking... Uh, significant, significant, massive national scale disaster that would occur in a way that uh, it would almost be impossible to know what to do about that. It'd be on the level of Three Mile Island, right? We're talking about evacuating whole parts of cities. If the fact that this is what we're talking about and thinking about doesn't convince people that the American political and economic situation is crumbling around them and that that might not be a bad thing necessarily, this situation should convince you of that. This is everything that we talk about constantly when we're talking about people's lives being abstracted away in political policy or corporations having political influence and being able to use the imperatives of capitalism to sort of you know, always get their political will uh, sort of manifested, right? The marginalization of poor communities. Like this is, these are all of the things that we talk about. Austerity, Right. Um, the failure of of state governments to engage in even basic infrastructural spending, right? Like these are the kinds of things that get brought up, not just on this show, but on a, a number of shows over and over and over and over again. And we're not even talking just radical shows like radical media. We're talking like the Biden campaign was talking about crumbling infrastructure in the Rust Belt when he was running for president. This is not an unknown problem. Like, I think that that's the part that to me is kind of infuriating. This is not an unknown problem. This is a widely known issue. The crumbling infrastructure of the Rust Belt has been a national political issue for over a decade now at this point, right? The gutting of environmental regulations has been an issue since the founding of the EPA. Do you know how the EPA, why the EPA was founded? Interesting tieback. The EPA was founded after the Cuyahoga River in the middle of Cleveland caught on fire four or five times in the late 1960s. It was so polluted. There was so much flammable, like there's so many flammable chemicals floating on top of the water that the story is somebody flicked a cigarette into the river and the whole river went up. There's pictures of this online. They founded the EPA in direct response to that. That's like 70 miles away from this, maybe 80 miles away. So this is a part of the country which has been an ecological wasteland for kind of a while, right? 
Um, it's a part of the country that politicians and corporations have felt comfortable turning into an economic waste, uh, into an ecological wasteland for kind of a while. And a lot of that has to do with class dynamics. You know, people in that part of the state of Ohio have been you know, politically marginalized for a really long time. And that marginalization combined with kind of Reaganomics and then sort of just overt austerity um, created conditions for this, you know, allowed this to happen. But again, the rail union was warning the federal government about this eventuality. You know, the, there have been study after study after study by the transportation department about crumbling infrastructure, right? It's not that these problems weren't known. You know, it's not that in that part of the country, there's not constant discussion about infrastructure spending because literally this is also, remember, this is also the part of the country where the power plant went down in 2003 that caused the entire Great Lakes power grid to go out. Right? So all of that's happening in the same part of the United States. You know, it's not far from a place like Flint. It's not far from a place like Detroit. Right? I mean, I think it's hard to imagine, but like for someone that grew up in this part of the country, like, you're surrounded by ecological destruction all the time, all the time, you know? And a situation like this really highlights what that means. You know, I was talking to a friend about this last week, but, you know, there's starting to be a bit of, of discussion of, you know, doing sort of like ecological action in, in the part of the Rust Belt I live in. And, you know, I was talking about how that's a really interesting concept. Like the person who brought this up wasn't, isn't from the area. And I was like, that's a really interesting idea, partially because I've just never really engaged with those questions because I've always just grown up in a wasteland. Like think about what's being said there, right? That you get so used to ecological devastation that even a person like me who's been involved in this work for a really long time, that doesn't become a primary question because it's just a given reality. But then something like this happens and you start to see what those effects look like in a very immediate way. Like the part of the Rust Belt I grew up in was uh, near a bunch of chemical refineries. And a lot of people that I grew up around worked at the chemical refineries. Um, there are incredibly high rates of MS, multiple sclerosis, in, in that area that are directly tied to the fact that chemical refineries are there. But that's not a huge disaster, quote unquote, because it's happened over 50 years. And then we watch a lot of that damage get done in the matter of a couple of weeks, right? And what that should be telling a lot of us is not just things about East Palestine. I mean, this should be telling us a lot about what people in this part of the country deal with all the time, why there's a lot of political anger and a lot of political disillusionment in this part of the U.S. and why the towns and cities are emptying out. I mean, this is a part of the country that used to be a major economic engine and has been abandoned by capitalism completely. You know, the part, the part of the Rust Belt I live in has been abandoned by capitalism completely. You know, um, with no real ability uh, because, you know, of the way that that politics and policing functions, no real ability to really function well outside of that without 
falling afoul of the law sometimes, right? And so you end up in situations where you have people that are already really pressed, that are already desperate, that have been getting pressed for generation after generation after generation, and are already living in circumstances like this, now having to deal with a disaster like this, now being forced out of their homes while also being told that it's safe, while also being told they need to drink bottled water and no one's done any testing yet, right? That they're being told they have to send their kids back to school next week, even though their kids were having asthma attacks during this, severe ones. And yet they're being told they have to send their kids back, like, next week. It will be, I think, important for us to watch what the reaction to this is in this part of the country. This is, um, the, the social and political dynamics of that part of the U.S. are not traditionally the type of social and political dynamics that generate kinds of political action around ecology. Um, but you're already hearing rumblings of that there. You're already seeing the ways in which something like this has changed that area, potentially permanently, right? You're already talking, there's already people talking about never being able to go home and the area just being abandoned, right? There's people already talking about trying to force their way back to make sure that their house doesn't get taken away. I mean, these are horrible problems to deal with in the midst of an ecological disaster. And that's exactly what's happening here, right? This is our future. You know, the way that things are happening now, the crumbling of American economics and politics, if we are not capable of being able to take control of that situation, we are going to be subject to its effects. And we already see a number of those in California with the forest fires. We see this with droughts all over the U.S. The Colorado River drying up. You can see it with the pandemic. The pandemic, right, exactly. (laughs) And now you look at something like this in this part of the country, which consistently deals with not only infrastructure failure, but infrastructure failure that impacts almost everybody else. And you're watching this happen now. Things happen in the Rust Belt first a lot of the time. The economic crisis impacted this area two years before it impacted anybody else. And you can see the foreshadowing of what our future looks like. Because things like this won't stay confined to the Rust Belt. You know, in enough time, infrastructure everywhere is going to be crumbling in the same way. You know, people are going to be forgotten about everywhere in the same way. You know, they're going to be overlooked. They're going to, you know, state governments corporations will function as if they're resources, right? They're not communities that matter. That reality is so stark in this situation that for those that don't live in areas with crumbling infrastructure, I think it's important to look at this and see what could happen. And for those of us that do, it's important to look at this and be able to understand the severity of the social and political problems that we deal with in this part of the country every single day. You know, it's living in the Rust Belt is hard. It's rough. It can be violent. It's, you know, difficult to make ends meet. You know, it's a hard place to live. It's also a beautiful place in a lot of ways, but it's a hard place to live. And a lot of those realities, just like they came forward in the Flint water crisis are coming forward in this situation 
And I think that that's really what we need to take away from this. Like as we're watching the situation play out for those that don't live in this part of the country, um, for those that, you know, may not be able to help respond directly to what's going on there, paying attention to how this is playing out, paying attention to the way that the state and federal government is behaving in this situation, paying attention to how easy it is to marginalize that population, to lie to them, to tell them contradictory things in the same press conference and just not care about it. Right. This is a level of, of marginalization and disappearance that a lot of people of color deal with in the United States every day. But this is also a reality that's going to impact all of us. Right. We are all going to end up in situations or many of us are going to end up in places abandoned by capitalism. We're going to end up in places that as a result of being abandoned by capitalism are no longer considered relevant and are forgotten about and abandoned to the world. Right. Increasingly, as ecological crisis gets more severe, as economic crisis becomes a lot more obviously apparent, this is a possible future that you know, is, is in store for a lot of people. Things like this. And we need to be ready for situations like this. I mean, it is, this is a very extreme example, but it's also an example that was born out of conditions that don't just exist in that part of the United States. Uh, these conditions do exist in other places, and we will see disasters like this in other places. And it really becomes the question again, not of whether or not American economics and politics collapses. It already is. But it's a question of whether or not we become agents of that collapse and are able to determine what that looks like. If we are active components of that and not just passive participants or passive observers, Right. If we remain passive in that situation, if we don't take moments like this as you know, striking illustrations of why fighting is really important right now, um, we are going to end up subject to the effects of the failures of capitalism without the power to do anything about them. And we can see what happens in a town like East Palestine when dynamics like that exist. Right? For those of you outside of the Rust Belt, I will promise you, you want to start trying to act on these things now before things get that bad. Um, because when they do, nobody's going to care anymore. And you're just going to be forgotten about until something horrible happens. Right. And that, especially in this part of the country is the result of decades of bipartisan politics, decades of capitulating to capitalists, decades of gutting workers' rights. Right. This this is what happens when we do that. We see thousands and thousands and thousands of people suffer. We see um, ecological disaster that you know will not be able to be mitigated for decades. And all of that is happening in this context right now. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.